Are you haunted by the idea that random people you pass on the street might have no idea that you're a fan of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy? Well, it's time to fix that by ordering a Geek's Guide to the Galaxy t-shirt over at geeksguide.threadless.com. Many styles and colors to choose from. Collect them all. So that's geeksguide.threadless.com. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 499 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Christopher J. Ferguson, who you may remember from our feature interview back in episode 420. He's a professor of psychology at Stetson University, and his articles have appeared in the New York Times, the New York Daily News, and the Houston Chronicle. He's also the author of the mystery novel Suicide Kings, and the nonfiction books Moral Combat, Why the War on Violent Video Games is Wrong, which he wrote with Patrick M. Markey, and How Madness Shaped History, an eccentric array of maniacal rulers, raving narcissists, and psychotic visionaries. And we'll be speaking to him today about his article, Are Orcs Racist? Dungeons and Dragons, Ethnocentrism, Anxiety, and the Depiction of, Quote, Evil Monsters, which appears in the journal Current Psychology. And now here's our interview with Christopher J. Ferguson. All right, so we're here with Christopher J. Ferguson. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on today. I do appreciate it. So how did you get interested in doing research on orcs? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, well, I've been doing research really on uh, technology and media for almost two decades at this point. I actually spent most of my time working in uh, video game research and looking at violence in video games, uh, but also looking at other media that has come to people's attention and tends to get people worried about its impacts on kids or other people and really everything from sort of like thin ideal me uh, images in television, you know, does that impact women's body dissatisfaction to 13 reasons why. And, and I, and I seem to be just get kind of interested in these, uh, you know, the, the, the term we tend to use these moral panics. So the idea that, you know, people get really concerned about something and there's this kind of like moral component to it, you know, whether it's save the children or, you know, there's a, evil empire of, of media industry that is harming some group of individuals. So I'm always very curious about those narratives. And, uh, you know, that's the sort of thing that attracts me to doing research in different areas. And, uh, and I happen to play Dungeons and Dragons myself. So I've been playing for, you know, decades. Uh, and uh, I happen to see just in the last few years, these, these controversies emerging uh, in a lot of games journalism about whether, you know, the representation of orcs and other evil monster critters, races, whatever we want to call them in Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder or other games, you know, whether these were bad, you know, was it causing racism in real life? Was it, uh, you know, uh, outrageous or offensive to most people that come from, you know, non-white backgrounds and, and, and so on and so forth. So again, very passionate debate, but I thought it was one that'd be kind of interesting to look to see if there's any data that might provide any evidence uh, for some of these concerns and, and may help guide some of the conversation. Right. And so I, so I read your article that's out now in Current Psychology. It's called, Are Orcs Racist, Dungeons and Dragons, Ethnocentrism, Anxiety, and the Depiction of, Quote, Evil Monsters? And so I'll, I'll just sum up quickly sort of the methodology as I understand it is yeah. you, you basically contacted 324 or so people via the Internet. And ask them a bunch of questions about what do they think about orcs and trying to find out a little bit about them. Uh, and then your results basically were that the people who, uh, about 90% of the people, I think, didn't really have any problem with, with orcs. Correct. And there was really no pattern, uh, in terms of, you know, and that was true regardless of the, the race of the respondent. And then there was no pattern. You were trying to sort of ask some questions to to determine whether they were ethnocentric, the people, whether they preferred their own culture to others. Correct. And there was really yeah. no indication that people who um, played Dungeons and Dragons were any more ethnocentric than than the people who didn't. Yeah. So is that a pretty good summary of the of the study? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think you know, in terms of simply looking at this from the lens of being concerned about Dungeons and Dragons, the news is mostly good. Uh, here, you know, so if, if people were concerned that, well, you know, if you're playing this game and you're being exposed to this idea that certain monsters are sort of evil by nature, maybe you'll take that 
and apply that in your personal life, you know, you, you'll start to think that, you know, different actual human races can be defined in such a way. Uh, uh, there doesn't, at least from this one study, there doesn't appear to be uh, a correlation there or any evidence of any kind of association. And, uh, and it doesn't appear that there's this like consensus, if you will, uh, that, you know, the depiction of evil monsters is necessarily um, a thing most people are worried about, whether they're white or non-white or male or female, whether they're Dungeons and Dragons players or not. Um, the, the one other thing I did look at that was a bit more disappointing and maybe, you know, more bad news for <laughs> the D&D players. I was also looking to see if, if uh, there was an association between Dungeons and Dragons playing and reduced anxiety, but there was not. So that is, that is the bad <laughs> news side of, uh, of, of the studies. We also didn't, or I didn't find that, uh, you know, uh, you know, because people kind of think, well, it's a relaxing game. It's a hobby. It should make me feel better. Um, I didn't find that either, <laughs> you know, necessarily. <laughs> so, uh, that's the downside. Yeah. Well, let me ask. I mean, one of the things that jumped out at me is that so you're trying to determine whether people are ethnocentric or not. And you do that by asking the questions like, I don't like some other races or cultures or, quote, I want to do social things only with people of my own race and culture. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, like, how reliable is that as a gauge of how ethnocentric a person is? Just asking them pretty much outright yeah. questions like that. Yeah, it's a, good, it's a good question. So, you know, there is this kind of concept of social desirability, you know, and the ideas with, with social desirability is, uh, you know, that if, if you give people these kind of uh, you know questions and they'll have some sense of like, this is how I really should respond, you know. Um, yeah, and the survey does ask about kind of like suspiciousness of other races, not just sort of like preference for, you know, being around people like myself, but also the sense of like, I'm uncomfortable around people of other races, or I would prefer not to associate, you know, around with people of other races or ethnicities. Um, you know, so certainly there is this kind of like, you know, maybe people are even in anonymous surveys, you know, maybe people are sort of faking good, you know, I know what I'm supposed to say. Um, and, and one thing we can kind of do to try to control for that is there also are measures of what are called social desirability. So you can kind of measure a person's tendency to self-flatter themselves, you know, in, in, in a way, if you will. Um, and, you know, basically you give people a list of, you know, things that are true for most people, but are also kind of embarrassing or unflattering or undesirable, you know, from a moral perspective. Um, and you see how they respond to those. So you can kind of control somewhat for people's tendency to try to lie on uh, on these measures. So that was one of the measures that was included in this uh, in the study was a measure of social desirability, which was used to try to control for some of that tendency uh, for people to, you know, perhaps not report some of the racism they may actually feel in real life. Mm -hmm. I'm, I also wonder, I mean, I feel like a lot of the racism might be like, might be really subtle. I mean, um, mm -hmm. A couple of years ago, I, I interviewed the author N.K. Jemison, mm -hmm. and she told the story that's really stuck with me. But she said that the first time she played Dungeons and Dragons as a kid, or tried to, I guess, um, yeah. she wanted she wanted to play a, a paladin who was a black woman character. Yeah, and the DM said, "Oh, well, paladins can't be black." Mm. And and she, and this sort of turned her off from playing the game at that time. Yeah. And she said, "I mean, we were just kids. It's not it's not the, the biggest deal in sure. the world, but." But that has always stuck with me that, like, because obviously the rules don't say paladins can't be black, but Absolutely. there's just something about the presentation of the material. At least I think this is probably first edition. Yeah, it would sort of like give a kid that that idea, right? Um, but then that kid probably wouldn't say, wouldn't, wouldn't be particularly ethnocentric or something. But it's just these more subtle, subtle kind of things that are in the messages that are in there. Yeah, yeah, you get this idea of, of you know kind of representation, you know, uh, and that sort of thing, and you know, and I think that probably is true if you look at the different you know editions over time, the first edition, second edition, and, and I don't think there was you know, I'm, you know I try to be charitable where I can. I don't think you know like Gary Gygax intended the first edition to necessarily be racially exclusive, but you know he probably you know was writing kind of from what he knew, you know, um, and it was you know pulling from a lot of European mythology and all that. So I think you know kind of it was influenced by that. And I think there is some reasonableness to this idea that, you know, we do want to see, you know, a wide range of, you know, so if you have art in the books, for instance, um, that, you know, player characters of different, you know, real life ethnicities, you should have a black paladin, you should have, you know, an Asian uh, individual who's playing, you know, whatever class, you know, they, they want to play so that people from different backgrounds do feel uh, like they have, you know, like the game is for them, like they are, uh, you know, included in that. I mean, I think the example, you know, uh, you, you give, you know, there, there is this idea in psychology of like explicit versus implicit racism. And there's some controversies around a lot of that, 
uh, that idea. I, th- I think, you know, I, I, I do appreciate the other person being generous to their uh, young friend. And, and like she said, they were very young, but we would probably would say like, if, you, if you're saying like a, a paladin can't be black, that's actually pretty, pretty explicit. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so, you know, whether, whether that kid necessarily internalizes it in the sense of, you know, then, you know, does he dislike black people in real life? That may not necessarily be the case, but you know, the, the expression in that, cer- that, that situation was certainly an explicit version of, uh, you know, of a stereotype. Um, you know, there is this idea of sort of implicit racism, which has been much more controversial um, in psychology. But the idea that you can be sort of outwardly that, you know, you really mean well, you really want to be uh, non-racist, uh, but you harbor these kind of unconscious biases that you may not even be fully, you know, you might not fully appreciate them uh, necessarily. But that's been a very, very controversial construct. And, you know, the, the main tool that is used to try to measure that the, the data says, you know, it's very popular because there are all these trainings around implicit biases and this kind of stuff. But the evidence we have now suggests that this concept of implicit bias, it may or may not be real, but, but measuring it doesn't really predict anything in the real world and, and trainings that are built around this concept of implicit bias don't work very well. Um, you know, for the most part, if, if we're trying to move towards diversity inclusion and, and, and targets like that. So, uh, yeah, those, it, it, you know, it, it definitely is a, a, a fair point, I think, to say that, you know, we want to see ourselves represented in our hobbies. And I think that's a very fair request, um, you know, as to this larger concept of, you know, implicit racism. Um, there's a whole rabbit hole, uh, you know, down there. But but at, at the moment, I think people tend to glom onto that concept. Um, but the science behind it isn't necessarily there quite yet. Well, I, I guess what I'm wondering is, like, for future, if people want to do similar studies to the one you did, is there anything else that they could do to measure people's ethnocentrism or whatever? Like, any future avenues for for research that other people could pursue? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. So this idea of ethnocentrism is, you know, sort of one component of you know the way that sort of racism is 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 thought about. So this one is kind of like an associative, uh, you know, uh, approach to understanding racism, you know, do you want to be around people similar to yourself or do you want to not be around people who are different from yourself uh, in an ethnic, you know, sort of sense. But you could look at also things like, you know, prejudice, you know, sort of prejudicial beliefs uh, that this racial group is less good at something or more good at something uh, or even discriminatory beliefs that, you know, uh, we, you know, we shouldn't have uh, people from this group working in this field or we have should have fewer immigrants from other countries or, or, or things like that. So you could definitely look at, um, you know, some somewhat more, uh, you know, behavioral measures where people are sort of like taking this and placing it into like real world uh, policies and, and uh, things, you know, behaviors in terms of their willingness to hire others or, or uh, you know, marry others and, and, and things like that. Or you could even use behavioral measures. We're actually doing a study in the lab right now with video games, kind of looking at how different, you know, racial depictions in video games um, may influence uh, people's behavior uh, towards individuals who, in this case, are either black or white. Um, and uh, in that situation, we give the participants the ability to be mildly aggressive, you know, actual mild, mild aggressive behavior. So we never even really ask about race or ethnicity or anything of that sort. Uh, but, uh, you know, of course we can't have anybody like knife each other or attack each other in the lab. So there are, there's a definite limitation to what we could do. Uh, but we do have people put, you know, another person's hand in a bucket of ice water essentially, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's annoying. It's not like gang violence in Chicago or anything of that sort, but, um, you know, some mildly annoying, mildly aggressive sort of behavior that still is ethical, you know, because we can't do any real harm in a laboratory setting. So the, the question there is, you know, so if you play, they're all with Resident Evil. They're you know, Resident Evil 5 and Re- Resident Evil 6. So if you kind of play the game you know, Resident Evil, where the zombies were mostly African, you know, are you more aggressive towards uh, an African-American individual when you have the opportunity to be so? Um, and, uh, and we don't have the data on that one yet. That's, a, that's still a study that is ongoing. But that might be another approach, you know, uh, to studying sort of racist uh behavior, if you will, um, doesn't even necessarily require asking them about race uh, or their racist feelings and that sort of situation. A little bit harder to do with Dunces and Dragons. The problem with Dunces and Dragons is, of course, it takes hours to play even one session. Um, and unlike a video game, you can have them play for half an hour. Um, and that's one of the reasons you really don't see as many experiments done with Dunces and Dragons. Um, it's just because of the time commitment that it would take to, to run people through a study in an experimental as opposed to a survey setting. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you know of any other studies like this that have asked hundreds of people about this orcs racism thing? Or is this 
one of a kind? As, as far as I know, for, for Dungeons & Dragons, this is it, you know. And, uh, of course, I'm hoping, you know, two things. One is that I'll have the opportunity to, you know, sort of replicate the study and, you know, perhaps extend it you know, in different populations. I'm um, hoping to, in the near future, you know, uh, replicate this in an all or mostly black sample, uh, for instance, um, as opposed to a multiracial sample. Um, but I'm also, you know, that's the thing about science is, you know, I'll be the first to say this is just one study and, you know, we want to see replications of, uh, of any study that are done. And, um, and the hope is that other people may be inspired to look into some of this information themselves, uh, by, you know, all, all my material and, and data and is, is all online. So people could take the stuff that I did and use it if they wish to. Um, and replicate it or change some variables um, and see if they get something different or if they get the same thing. You know, of course, it's awesome if they get the same results as, as I did, but it's also interesting if they don't. Um, and that's kind of how science builds upon it, you know, upon itself. But uh, but I'd love to see more studies uh, done on this because I think that, you know, this is a debate that's very passionate, um, but that is occurring right now without there being much light, you know, in terms of if the concern is really these practical issues, you know, maybe it's not, you know, but if the concern is really these practical issues of what impact does this have on the real world and what percentage of people actually care about it who are, you know, playing Dungeons and Dragons, we just don't have a lot of data yet uh, to guide that, that conversation. Yeah. Well, I mean, the other, th the other thought I had is that, you know, even if it's true that at the moment, 90% of people don't have any problem with this you know and that's again across across different racial groups that maybe the people who do are just like ahead of the moral curve mm -hmm. and that people need to have their consciousness raised and that more people will have you know will will come to, i mean just this just hypothetically but yeah. more people would come to take this more seriously in the future like what do you think of that that idea yeah it's, it's always hard to predict i mean you know in terms of you know whether people become more progressive or more conservative uh you know of course the arc over the last few decades really has been this arc of greater um, progressiveness that's occurred in, you know, in the last few decades. And I think most people would not want to go back to say the 1950s or 1960s. Um, the, the, the trend that is, that I sort of see emerging in sort of progressivism over the last maybe five to 10 years. And this of course is not anything unique to Dungeons and Dragons or even technology or, or uh, you know, video games or, or whatever else, but there is this kind of sense of, um, you know, there being a greater embrace of, you know, censoriousness and, you know, less interest in due process. And, you know, I guess, you know, for lack of a better term, the cancel culture and, and all that kind of stuff. That, that used to be more prevalent on the right, you know, that we would kind of see that those sort of embraces of those approaches. And so it's, I don't know. I mean, it's really kind of hard to predict to see is, is, is this going to become, you know, the, the, the wave of the future or is there going to be a inflection point here where, you know, the progressive left is eventually, which I would have identified as being part of, uh, certainly, you know, um, 10 years ago, perhaps less so now, you know, but, um, you know, whether that, that arc is going to continue or for an inflection point where it's going to change because the progressive left is kind of over, playing his hand somewhat. I, I don't know. And, and I wish I had the magic wand or the crystal bowl to look into, uh, to be able to figure that out. Um, but I'll be the first to say, you know, in terms of what's happened over the previous decade, I wouldn't have seen most of what, what, what has happened over the mm -hmm. previous decade happen either on the right or the left. Uh, so my ability to prognosticate the future is pretty, um, you know, it's pretty <laughs> limited. Well, well so you, you mentioned that, yeah, there's been a lot of heat around this subject, and I'm not by any means an expert on this controversy. I had one sort of brush with it a couple of years ago mm -hmm. that I could talk about. But the thing that I that I did see was that Wizards of the Coast had this blog post a couple, I don't know, like two years ago mm -hmm. or so, a year or two ago, called Diversity in Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. And I'll just read sort of two representative uh, excerpts from that. So, so one of the things they say is, Throughout the 50-year history of D&D, some of the peoples in the game, orcs and drow being two of the prime examples, have been characterized as monstrous and evil using descriptions that are painfully reminiscent of how real-world ethnic groups have, have been and continue to be denigrated. That's just not right, and it's not something we believe in. And then a little below that it says, 
uh, in their in our new books, orcs and drow are just as morally and culturally complex as other peoples. We will continue that approach in future books, portraying all the peoples of D and D in relatable ways and making it clear that they are as free as humans that they are as free as humans to decide what they are and what they do. So, just sort of as a as a D and D, as you said, a long time D and D player, uh, what did you think about that sort of? Um, uh, stuff coming out of Wizards of the Coast. Yeah, well, I mean, I think they are, you know, alert to you know this movement, you know, from the progressive left, which has been very vocal um, and such. And so, I I think they're kind of doing the same thing that a lot of left leaning spaces. I don't know if we would have traditionally thought of D and D as being left leaning, but you know, if you look at like you know national news media, look at academia, you look at even sort of science based organizations and such, and they're all kind of responding to this kind of, you know, social political narrative um, in ways that are sometimes good and, and sometimes, you know, perhaps not always necessarily uh, so, so good. So, I mean, I, I think the thing that's going to, you know, be the key issue for Wizards of the Coast or, you know, other makers of similar systems like Pathfinder um, is what the market's going to bear, you know. So right now the vocal, you know, corner is the sort of progressive, whether again, it's 10% of individuals or, or 5% or 20%, you know, this very vocal group of players who are asking for these changes and they're couching it in moral language, you know, that really, that if you don't do this, you're racist. Um, and I think that's a very difficult argument to sort of push back against. Um, and so the question will then become is, are the changes that Wizards of the Coast making in the game um, to, to appease or to, you know, to make um, happier that particular group was well, really two questions. First off, is it really going to make that group happier? Uh, but also second, are there going to be backfire effects in terms of, you know, there's also the traditionalists, uh, if you will. And there's probably a big group of players in the middle that really aren't necessarily either traditionalists or progressives. Uh, so what is this going to do to Wizards of the Coast market share, which right now is they're, you know, they're selling like hotcakes. So they're not in any real concern in that situation. Um, but does this open up, you know, the opportunity for some kind of like, you know, not necessarily anti-woke, but, you know, sort of non-woke, non-progressive uh, system uh, to capture a big chunk of the market share that uh, Wizards of the Coast may be giving up uh, by losing some of the traditionalists and even some of the moderates, perhaps, that are less traditionalist or progressive? Right. I mean, so so I think I told you over email that the the, the sections that I just read uh, when I first saw them, I was kind of like, uh, they kind of made me cringe a little bit. Mm. And I'll say it, it's because sort of the surface reading, it seems to me, I would sort of translate or, you know, could be interpreted as, and I sort of wrote this down, that it's wrong for a fantasy world to contain evil monster species. And from now on, all monster species in D&D will contain the same proportion of good, neutral and evil individuals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what a surface reading of it seems to indicate to me. And I, I, I came up with what I would... If 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 they had given it to me to rewrite, <laughs> this is how I would have done it. Yeah. Um, okay, I'll just try to read this quickly. So, uh, but this this would be, I, I think, like a more kind of moderate expression of the same sort of sentiment. But you could you could say, uh, in the past, some of the D and T monster descriptions have included language that we feel is a bit too reminiscent of ugly rhetoric that exists in the real world. We're altering that language to emphasize that D and D is a fantasy world that exists in its own separate reality. Also, earlier editions described many monster species, such as orcs or drow, as categorically evil. There have always been exceptions to that, and we're rewriting those descriptions to emphasize that it's always been possible for individual members of those species to have a good or neutral alignment as well. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, I just feel like, because what are the actual changes that are being contemplated, it seems to me, are fairly minor. I mean, mm -hmm. like, I always grew up with, you know, there was like Dritz and Kaz the Minotaur, these like, yeah. like members of, of evil species, but were, were heroic characters in the books and, and modules and stuff. Um, and so I feel like you could, you could sort of make some of these points without, um, you know, sort of criticizing so heavily the stuff that came before yeah. or, or making it seem like it's not something that other writers or, uh, players or whatever could, you know, if they just want to have evil monster species right. in their games, like they could say like, oh, that's, you know, it's your game. You can do whatever you want. But in our core products, we're, we're just taking a different approach or something. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, th I think what you're trying to do is, is find a compromise, you know, and of course what happens with a lot of these debates uh, is nobody wants to compromise. 
Um, you know, first off, uh, I think that's kind of one issue with this. Um, the, you know, the other issue too is really there is this kind of assumption that there's a parallel between orcs, for instance, or drow or other monster races and sort of, you know, racial stereotypes that have existed, you know, in real life. And I think that, you know, one thing that gets kind of lost in that discussion, that's very subjective. It's really kind of hard to definitively say yes or no. And uh, so people in some cases are sort of encouraged to read that into some of these descriptions. Um, but if you kind of look, and I'm not a folklorist by any means, but if you kind of look historically, you know, many to most societies, you know, if you look at their folklore, have had some version of this like good versus evil and some kind of critters, you know, that were by nature evil, you know, and it's not necessarily clear that the same that Dungeons and Dragons has that system is that that's something that got invaded, that got uh, invented, excuse me, uh, you know, because of, you know, modern racism necessarily, as opposed to they're just doing what people have been doing since there's been storytelling. You know, even orcs are based in Irish folklore. They, they, they weren't invented by Tolkien. You know, they've been around for, you know, centuries um, and such. And they've been bad, you know, uh, you know, all this time. Right. I mean, I'll stipulate no racist intent on the part of the creators of the game, right? I yeah. mean, that, that's, I, I think that's not the interesting part of the discussion. The interesting part of the discussion to me is the idea that sort of habits of thought that you form in the game bleed out into how you interact in the right. real world. And, um, and so it's like, in a lot of ways, it's the same thing. It's like, oh, I'm afraid that if my kid plays Grand Theft Auto all day long, yeah. they're going to be more likely to be violent or criminal in the real world. And that seems, as you said from your research, that just seems not to be true. Mm -hmm. But it seems like a really natural human fear to have that, like, what we fantasize about affects our real world behavior. And so if you spend all your time playing yeah. a game where you're killing monsters and taking your taking their gold, like, does that affect how you view the real world in any way? Yeah. And it seems the evidence is it really doesn't, but it's, it seems to me it's a reasonable concern for people to a sort of natural concern for people to have. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a very intuitive, you know, idea. And the, and the good news here is that, you know, people are really bad at learning, I guess, you know, this <laughs> is the way you can kind of think of it. <laughs> and you can see this across, uh, you know, media effects that, you know, if you're looking at fictional media that you see basically the same thing, that fictional media, now, now things like news media are a little bit different, but you know, fictional media, for the most part, is really difficult to pin down any kind of effects on attitudes or behavior. That's really true whether you're talking about, again, sort of like thin actresses, you know, and affecting like eating disorders or things like that, or if you're talking about like 13 reasons why causing teen suicide, or you're looking at violent video games and aggression. We really just don't see powerful effects, and, you know, I would argue that they're pretty close to zero effects. Uh, for the most part, across most of these realms. But people kind of like really get stuck on that idea. And there are all these like myths out there that people, particularly on social media, will raise. If you kind of talk about this, we'll say, well, what about the Jaws effect? You know, it's kind of this idea that, you know, the movie Jaws caused this massive depopulation of sharks, which is entirely mythical. There, there is no evidence to suggest that the movie Jaws did any such thing. Shark populations were declining before you know, the movie Jaws. Uh, came out and it's mostly due to overfishing, you know, because of uh, shark fin soup and, you know, all that kind of stuff. There's, nobody walks to the beach with a shotgun and shoots a shark, you know, um, you know, so it, it, you know, people kind of look for these stories, these anecdotes to try to fit this narrative that this idea that sort of like our social world or our individual internal worlds are, are deeply shaped by media. And for the most part, that doesn't appear to be true. And if you kind of think of it in other contexts, you kind of see people will actually drop that idea pretty quickly. You know, the example I sometimes use, and it's more of a training one than an attitudinal one, but, you know, if, if you were to get on a, a get on a flight, actually, I'm going to be flying tomorrow, in fact. So I can say if I was going to get on a flight tomorrow um, mm -hmm. and the pilot came over the intercom and said, uh, hey, welcome, everybody, you know, to our flight uh, I just thought you'd be curious to know this is the first time I've actually flown a jetliner myself, but I've been training for 10,000 hours on Microsoft Flight Simulator, so I think I've got this down. Uh, <laughs> people would be trampling each other to get off the plane because we know that learning doesn't transfer. There is this idea of like transfer of learning, and when I said that humans are bad at learning, I really was referring to that. Humans don't transfer learning from one situation to another very effectively, so if you look at like media violence, you know, if you watch a lot of very violent movies, you kind of do get desensitized to it. You know, you do kind of like get less of an emotional reaction. The whole Saw series is built on that. You know, each movie gets worse than the one before because they know that's what's happening to their audience. 
you know, but what happens to real life where you see somebody getting injured in real life, someone falls off a bicycle in front of you and loses a few teeth. Do you still have an emotional response? Yes. You know, people do not transfer that desensitization that they're experiencing in media violence to, you know, to real life. So, you know, is it just, if you play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons, do you get callous towards orcs? Maybe. Um, but it doesn't seem to, you know, transfer over to callousness towards uh, individuals who are different from ourselves ethnically uh, in the real world. And again, I think that's, I, I agree. I think that's really, to me, the more interesting sort of aspect of this is not so much the um, problematization of, you know, we're looking, you know, the ungenerous reads of, 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 of Tolkien or, or uh, Gary Gygax or, or whatever else, but really like, what does this mean for the real world? Um, does this really have an impact that we should care about? And like most forms of fictional media, it appears that the answer is no. Um, that uh, you can, you know, to put it bluntly, you can kill all the orcs and drow you want and think they're all evil and you're the hero, and it doesn't really make a difference in terms of how you approach people who are from different cultures or different eth- ethnicities or different backgrounds in uh, any real world experience. Yeah. Yeah, so let me let me tell you about this this brush I had with with this controversy a couple of years ago, and I mentioned this a little bit over email, but but basically what happened is I interviewed this fantasy author Andy Duncan, and he wrote a story called Senator Bilbo, where it's a parody of Lord of the Rings, and he had noticed that there was this in real life there was this segregationist senator named Theodore Bilbo, and he just thought it was funny that the this is the same name as as the you know the hero in um, the Hobbit. And so he uh, he wrote this story in which in which there's this this hobbit uh, politician and he's trying to he's he's aghast at the fact that orcs are being integrated into the Shire mm-hmm. and is trying to stop that from happening or is there, at least is upset about upset about that happening and it's a fun I think it's a really good story it's really funny yeah. and it just makes you look at the the narrative that you're presented in Lord of the Rings from a different perspective. And I think that's all great. And so I, so I just, you know, I, I wrote a little, wrote up a little article about this and, um, and the headline was, uh, is Lord of the Rings prejudiced against orcs question mark, which I thought was just funny. I, you know, I had, I had no expectation that anyone would pay any attention to this at all. Cause right. you know, we talk about the sort of stuff on this podcast all the time and it, it generally goes unnoticed by the, uh, <laughs> the wider world. Sure. Um, but but so here's here's the list of news outlets that ran headlines about this: uh, the Telegraph, the Times of London, the Daily Star, Daily Wire, Breitbart, the National Review, the New Statesman, RT, Red State, Glenn Beck, mm-hmm. the Daily Mail, and Infowars. So, I guess I don't know. I, I guess I, I you know I, I mentioned that that had happened yeah. to you over mm-hmm. email. Kind of what's your just I don't know what's your overall response to that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so obviously you you uh, pissed off the conservatives with that one, yeah. Um, or at least that's what it sounds like to me. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, so we do have these, like, I mean, this is, you know, obviously occurring all over the place in the culture right now as we see these, you know, people that are digging in on the right and people that are digging in on the left, you know. Um, and that's the concern I really have with, I think, you know, sort of the, uh, player side of the debate, you know, over Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder or any of these systems is that, most of this debate is really nasty, you know, or at least what's, uh, you know, popping up on social media, that part of it is really nasty and, and unconstructive. And the ideal is that, you know, I mean, obviously these systems are going to change, you know, and, uh, and, and the goals of inclusivity and diversity are good, you know, um, and th- these systems may need to make certain changes, you know, uh, in order to make that happen. And, uh, and I'm certainly not opposed to that. Uh, and the ideal is to kind of like take representatives from both sides of these debates and kind of sit them down together and get them to compromise. That's why, you know, when you, you mentioned your different take on the wizard statement there, I was, you know, say, well, you're, I was going to joke and say your first mistake was trying for compromise. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's kind of the idea that you ideally would want to get people out of different viewpoints and say, well, what do you need to have and what can you kind of give up and what do you need to have and, what can you give up? And then nobody gets a hundred percent of what they want. Uh, you know, and everybody's kind of grumbling at the end that I, I gave up too much, you know, whatever, but there's this buy-in, right? You know, everybody kind of bought into this. Everybody has this feeling that they're represented, you know, at least by these people that they think are representing their viewpoints um, or whatever. And, and the system you end up with is probably better for all of that. Uh, you know, having done that, you know, whether Wizards right now is doing anything like that, I have no idea. I, I, I don't see any evidence that they are, but who knows what they're doing? You know, they, they don't consult with me. 
Um, you know, so they may yeah. be doing something behind the scenes that, that I, you know, their, 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 their signaling has not been that <laughs> they seem, you know, they seem to be on the treadmill of, of trying to appease the progressives, you know, at the moment, uh, which is sort of a losing proposition of itself. But, but, you know, I think if they were really trying to design an, like a truly inclusive system, you know, they, they would sit people down with different viewpoints and, and, you know, make that very visible and transparent, that whole process. Um, and try to figure out, you know, what do each of these sides need? What do they, what can they each give up in order to sort of get most, but not all of what they want? And everybody kind of feel like the next system is going to be, you know, maybe not perfect, you know, but, uh, better than it might have been if it went to become like the, the woke version of Dungeons and Dragons or the anti-woke version of Dungeons and Dragons, which is just going to leave half the people unhappy. Well, like I said, I don't have, I haven't actually read any of the, Dungeons Dragons books that came out subsequent to this this statement I read. So I don't mm. I don't have a good sense of exactly how it's being implemented. And you know, like I said on over email, maybe it's being implemented, you know, better than it it, it sounds. But I mean, because the way it it sounds is like, oh, um, no species is better behaved than any yeah. other species. Like the the drow are just as good as the like dwarves or like whatever and that that seems to me to be such a fundamental change to yeah, the world of yeah. dungeons and dragons that i it sounds like a terrible idea to me yeah but i mean maybe i'm not maybe that's not what it is maybe it's there it's more just at, at the level of tinkering um but i don't know if you if you have any sense of what how how big the changes actually yeah have been i can speak done. i can speak to it a little bit you know and again with the caveat that oftentimes there's a little bit of mixed messaging that happens from you know, both Wizards of the Coast and uh, Paizo, you know, which makes Pathfinder that, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, one person says something, another one walks it back. So there's, there's a little bit of that going on. Um, yeah, I mean, I think what they've said that they were going to do, again, the signaling suggests that the more optimistic read, as, as you put it, probably is less likely than the more pessimistic read. You know, so you know, the first real book that came, came out that, that dealt with it was the, the Tasha's Cauldron of, of Everything, which really kind of, I, in many ways, I just thought the changes were pretty good. I mean, you know, because I like a lot of flexibility, but they really it made it so that it was easier to kind of design a character that you weren't sort of restrained, you know, in terms of like the pluses or minuses you got to abilities based on race or, you know, they really they try to take away a lot of that or at least give you the option of taking away a lot of that stuff. Now, what, you know, what happens sometimes is they, in one edition, they'll release a book that's kind of like tipping their toe in the water for the next edition when they go full in on something. So it's possible that, you know, what is an option in, in Tasha's cauldron of everything, you know, may really become you know, the, the rule for whatever, what is 5.5 or 6, whatever edition they're going to come up with next. But the, the other one that got a lot of attention and, and uh, is uh, Candle Keep Mysteries, which which came out and got a lot of both praise and criticism because, uh, um, you know, they had uh, what was, they, they didn't actually mention this in the book, but the designer of one of the levels, you know, in, in social media talked about it being a wheelchair accessible dungeon, uh, for instance. And a lot of the characters, the non-player characters, in the book, uh, use they, them pronouns, they're non-binary, um, so on and so forth. So definitely a nod towards inclusivity, particularly on gender issues and, and, uh, disability issues. But on the other hand, it did kind of read like you're adventuring through your university library, kind of, you know, that it, it did have this very 21st century, you know, political left kind of feel to it that, uh, I think a lot of people found sort of bad for immersion, you know, if you will, uh, that not, and not that you can't, you know, have, uh, non-binary characters or that you can't have, uh, characters with disabilities, but would those characters really handle it the same way that we do in the 21st century United States necessarily? You know, uh, there, there are probably ways of dealing with those realities, uh, in still this kind of like brutal fantasy world, uh, that might've been intriguing and exciting, and character developing that don't require the sort of suspension of, of, of disbelief. Um, so there's that. Yeah, the things with the drow are, they, I think the Wizards released a statement fairly recently saying that, yeah, sort of like the main drow city of, of Menzo Barazin is going to be sort of like an evilly ruled city, but there'll be these outlying, you know, towns and villages and cities of drow that are not necessarily evil. So it, it made it, it reminded me a little bit of like this sort of historical Aztecs, you know, where like, like the, the central city was engaged in human sacrifice and, and horrible things. But there were these, you know, other, you know, cult communities on the outskirts that actually were quite horrified 
um, by a lot of what was, uh, you know, going on. So it definitely is well, nuanced, uh, to be sure. Yeah, well, let me ask, because, I mean, because, you know, the, the Drow I, I care more about, because, I mean, one of my favorite books growing up was Homeland by R.A. Salvatore, mm-hmm. which is, it's the story of Dritz, uh, who's a, a dark elf, and he's, you know, the, the dark elves in this book, you know, are, are basically all evil, yeah. and he's the one who has a conscience, and, and this puts him at odds with his whole society, and he eventually uh, goes into exile. Um, and I, I really loved that book and it really, I read it when I was in middle school and it really like captured so perfectly how it feels to be in middle school. Like you just feel like you're in this like evil city where everyone's sort of a sociopath and out for their own advancement and, uh, you know, uh, mindlessly cruel and all this stuff. Yeah. And I feel like one of the things that fantasy does is that it expresses, it uses this imaginary, uh, you know, vocabulary to, uh, to express an emotional truth. Mm-hmm. And so... I, I would hate to lose that. You know, if you say like, oh, well, Menzo Barons and it's no worse than anywhere or any other city or whatever. Like, yeah. well, then what do I need a fantasy novel right. for? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I think, um, I think that was a lot of the reaction to Candlekeep Mysteries is, again, you know, this is just seeming like my university now, you know, um, to some extent. So it is removing, you know, that, you know, that immersion. And, and the other thing that's, I think, important to think about is it's not really clear – that even for the people who say that they want this, it's not clear that it actually is to their benefit. And and the example I would raise there is Paizo, who makes Pathfinder, sort of a you know a, a competitor to, to Dungeons and Dragons, um, just removed. Or again, there's some mixed messaging on this. So with that little throat clearing, basically, basically removed or partially removed the. the topic of slavery from their system. So slavery in, in the Pathfinder system, and I played a little bit of Pathfinder, but it's not my main system, but, you know, it's, it's presented as evil, you know, and of course there are these evil empires and you have the opportunity to fight against the slavers and all this kind of stuff. So it was not presented as if it was a desirable thing. Uh, it was not presented as if it was like directed towards, you know, only black, you know, humans or, or anything of that sort. Um, but, you know, some people basically still objected to, you know, just the, just the, just that slavery was in the system, um, at all. And, and Paizo with a bit of mixed messaging kind of said that, you know, either they're going to remove it completely with no explanation, uh, or they'll just kind of leave it, but never will have any more storylines that sort of deal with it, um, in their, you know, in their campaign setting. So, but the, the question becomes is really like, is this helpful? You know, because like in, in, in I'm a psychologist, like in cognitive behavioral psychology, avoiding things that make us uncomfortable usually makes things worse, you know? So it's not really clear that even for the people who are objecting to some of these topics that, you know, it's what um, uh, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt call safetyism, sort of idea that sort of bubble wrapping everything because some things may be objectionable to some people, that that's the best approach. So, you know, the idea is that, you know, if we sort of like remove slavery, we make the drow, more nuanced, whatever, this is going to make people less anxious, less mentally ill, less upset, whatever. And I'm not sure that's true. You know, and this is something we don't have any clear evidence on, at least not in this particular realm, but I'm nervous about this. Um, you know, we've been seeing more safetyism in society in the last 10 years, and we're seeing an increase in mental health issues. Now, that's correlational. I can't say definitively that's causal. Um, but I'm a little bit worried about this move to, you know, somebody said they're upset about something and now we need to remove it entirely or change it yeah, um, yeah. and they'll get better. I'm not sure that that is true necessarily. Well, this is what I was saying to you over over email is that I, I generally just tend to prefer what I would call additive rather than subtractive mm. approaches where yeah. you're, you know, if you don't like the the you know i mean i understand it's like different with dungeons and dragons because it's so culturally dominant and so you want to change it because you want to play dungeons and dragons but but just in general that you know the 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 more options there are the better so it's like if 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 there's this game with evil monsters and you think that that's you know like uncounterproductive or something well like have make your own game that doesn't have evil monsters or like encourage people to play a game with no evil monsters and it just seems that that like the con- like like you're saying with the the safetyism and everything, it just seems to me a healthier approach yeah. to have like yeah like some games where the monsters are all it's you're, you know you have for example like a Star Trek game where where generally yeah. you're trying to understand other cultures and forge peace between warring factions and so on, and then you have Dungeons and Dragons where you're mostly killing the evil monsters, right. and then you have like Andy Duncan's story where it's it's raising the issue of like wait maybe the story we have the story all wrong maybe the 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 good guys are the bad guys and so on. Like, but, but to, to have all those different perspectives and approaches seems to me just healthier than to try to limit, to, to limit, to, yeah, to cut out anything 
like you're saying, yeah, anything yeah. Uh, that makes us uncomfortable or that, yeah. that makes anyone unhappy or, or anything like that. Yeah, I think it's tricky. I mean, you know, of course, part of this debate is people will say, you know, well, if you don't like it, then you could always, you know, make your own game or your, you know, at your table, you can play Dungeons and Dragons the way that you still like to play it. You know, of course, that's an argument that cuts both ways. You know, I mean, that's, you know, you could say, well, fine, well, let's keep it the way it is then. And you can do that. Um, you know, so it's not a real serious argument, I think, for one side, um, you know, or, uh, you know, or the other. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I agree with the additive approach. I mean, I think more options for people, you know, is, is better. But, uh, but even when people kind of say, like, you know, well, you can play the game the way you want. I don't always think they mean it, you know, because uh, and I didn't follow this super closely. But I know that the uh, uh, TSR or some, like, zombie version of TSR tried to emerge in the last year. And I think it was one of uh, Gary Gygax's sons was involved in it somehow. And I, and I guess I didn't follow super closely, so I'm going to mangle the story, but you know, it, it sort of emerged with this kind of like idea. It was going to be this like anti-woke, you know, alternative, you know, which if you're saying, you know, that you can play the game you the way you want and you're progressive, then you say, well, there you go. TSR is giving you your alternative. Go play TSR's new system that is ostensibly anti-woke. Um, and instead, people mobbed it on, on Twitter. And, and I, th- I don't know. I don't know what the status of the company is. I think it was. It, 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 my impression of it watching on social media was like looking at a toddler in a wave pool at one of these like like you know water parks. And the big, they're walking and they look like they're okay, but this big wave comes and crashes and knocks them down and stuff. And, uh, uh, so I don't, I don't know what's happening with TSR, you know, after that, but it was very clear that this idea, well, just go play your own game. As soon as that option pops up, no, you know, you can't have that either. You know, that is not, it's just not allowed, uh, for you to have that, you know, that alternative system, you know, either. And I think that's also one of the big risks of like Wizard for Wizards of the Coast or Paizo or these other big companies. That I think that I sort of raise this issue of sort of like the apology treadmill. That I, I think that w- the mistake they may be making, you know, if we assume sort of good faith in here on their part, that you know they get a criticism and then they release an apology and then they change something, and then what inevitably happens is people reject the apology and then ask for more changes, and then they apologize again, and then they make more changes, and then people reject that apology. So there's a lot of goalpost moving that occurs, you know, in this space at all. And that's just basic human psychology. You know, if, if people do a thing and you reward it, they're going to do it more, you know, not less. And I think people are like wizards or Paizo think that we're going to make these changes and then these people are going to be happy. And this, and then this problem is going to go away. And I don't think that that's going to be the end result of this. And that's why I think that, you well, know, yeah, go ahead. Well, well, you raised that issue in the discussion section of your paper is, is it seems like maybe they need some sort of um, standard of like what percentage of our, you know, we, we do a poll and people say they have a problem with this and it has to reach some certain threshold before we change it. Yeah. You know, they need some sort of standard for, mm-hmm. I mean, what do you, I mean, because what do you think, do you think that they should, they should say like, you know, we're every year we pull our, uh, our players and ask them what changes they want us to make and what's yeah. bothering them or, you know, like what upsets them. And, uh, if, if it stays below 5% or something, yeah. we don't move but if it gets above x percent then we we start you know we put together a group to talk about making these changes or something like that yeah i mean i think at least there's some empiricism you know in that approach because i think what's happening right now is you know companies all over the place are mistaking twitter for real life you know so an outrage occurs on twitter uh and the proportion of individuals who use twitter and you know post on it regularly is very very tiny um, and so, but people see these like outrages on Twitter and then sometimes that gets picked up by outlets like Vox and Vice and all kinds of other stuff. And, you know, um, and, and, and they think they're having a widespread public relations catastrophe when it really is just a relatively small group of individuals who are super, super, uh, vocal. And I, and I, that's where, again, I kind of come back to the, the, you know, the, some of the original points when we first started the interview is I don't think companies in general have figured out how to manage that. You know, what do you do? with a relatively small number of individuals who are very aggressive, who are using highly moralistic language and accusing you of being immoral. How do you deal with that, you know, uh, in a way that is constructive, you know, and, and part of that is you have a few options. You have, you know, the option of telling them to get lost, you know, and a few companies have done that, you know, Trader Joe's did that, Coinbase did that, and it worked. 
um, you know, for them, uh, for, you know, for the most part. Or you could capitulate entirely, you know, um, and I think that's kind of the direction, um, you know, Wizards, at least, and Paizo are kind of signaling right now, they seem to be doing is, is capitulating, which I think just ends up with this treadmill of, uh, you know, you're, yeah. you're just not going to end up satisfying anybody. Um, or well, and, uh, let me know. say, I, go ahead. Let me say, I, I thought it was an interesting point you made in the in the paper, too, is that in the 80s, early 90s, when the Christian right was ascendant, they, you know, they made a big stink about all the demons and yeah. black magic and stuff and Dungeons and Dragons and TSR at the time, you know, took a lot of that stuff out as response. And then sort of once that that wave of criticism receded, then they kind of put it all back in again. Mm. And that it might be something similar with with the progressive left that, you know, that they they're like, OK, now the the orcs and drow, they're not so evil anymore. And then kind of once that you know, that wave of outrage crests and recedes that in the future they might be like, okay, well, they're, they're actually, they're a little more evil than we said yeah. <laughs> last time, you know? Yeah. I think that's a likely outcome. I, you know, I, you know, I, again, uh, it's always hard to predict the future, you know, especially with these kind of cultural patterns and, you know, we have to, you know, uh, certainly keep an eye on this idea that right now, you know, the younger generations are certainly more liberal and progressive than the, the older generations are. But part of that's also an age effect, you know, so people tend to become more conservative, uh, you know, as they age. As we, we can watch this from the Democratic Party. They've been waiting for this, like, demographic wave for the past you know, two decades to ride them into permanent majorities. It just doesn't ever seem to come. Um, you know, and I think something like that will probably happen here. And, uh, you know, there's going to be, a, I, I suspect there'll be a course correction at some point where um, not just in role playing, but sort of in the culture at wide, people are going to, you know, in larger ways, sort of reject the more extreme versions of progressivism um, that have emerged over the last few years. We're already seeing some movement, you know, in that area in, in, in various places. Um, you know, unfortunately it tends to be associated with the far right, but, you know, a lot of it actually is coming from the center and the left. Um, but, uh, so I, I think there will be a course correction, you know, and my own experience with things like video games is it tends to be a 15 to 20 year cycle, um, somewhere in that range. It was a little bit shorter with the, uh, Satan panic with Dungeons and Dragons. I think it was like from 89 to 97. I think they removed the demons and devils from the, uh, or at least they didn't use those words, um, you know, from the system. Um, I, I think the difference with the, the, the one, I, I, I do tend to think that there are a lot of similarities between the Satan panic of the nine of the eighties and nineties and the, uh, current panic over race, you know, in the, in orcs and that kind of stuff in the D and D system. Now the, the only, the, the one difference that is important, however, is that a lot of that panic in the eighties and nineties came from outside of the community of D and D players, whereas a lot of the panic now is coming from within of uh, the community of D and D players, I think that's making it, or it is going to make it a bit more of a challenge. Because you know, it, it, even though that, even though it isn't what they did, you know, thirty years ago, they could have just told the Christian conservatives to get lost, and they probably should have. Uh, but uh, but but it's kind of harder to do that when it's part of your player base. You're trying to keep as many of your players um, as you can, uh, and then you have two groups of players: the traditionalists and the progressives that are at odds with each other. What do you do with that? You know, and like I said. I, if I were to, you know, if they were to ask me to advise them, I would say that the real answer is here to try to figure out some way to have a very open and transparent compromise process between these two very different groups. Um, whether they'll do that or not, um, you know, who knows? Yeah, I also just want to something you said earlier was about how just how how nasty the arguments are and how how much um, how little good faith there is and how much attribution of malice there is toward the other side and stuff. And I just wanted to talk about that because, you know, when I when I did this Andy Duncan interview, I read a lot of the comments and stuff. And, and most of the com- like 90 percent of the comments were like, Andy Duncan is stupid. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know that orcs aren't real. Uh, and within the context of the story, orcs are not an oppressed minority. They're evil monsters mm-hmm. you know, created by Morgoth using black magic, et cetera. Yeah. And it's like, look, obviously, like Andy Duncan is a professional fantasy author. <laughs> He's a literature professor. Like, obviously, he knows orcs aren't real, right? Yeah. So, like, any time that you spend making the argument that your opponent is just so stupid that they don't know orcs aren't real is obviously just a complete waste of everybody's time, right? Yeah. Because, like, the argument, you know, the argument isn't, that within like like everybody understands that orcs aren't real and everybody understands that within the context of the story that orcs are evil right the 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 issue as i said earlier is is like people are afraid of the habits of thought that you form in that fictional world bleeding out yeah. to the real world and i don't think that that that's much of a concern as i said but that's the concern it's it's not that they don't understand like about orcs are real or, or anything related to that yeah so 
I just think any any argument that relies on just saying that your um, your opponents are so stupid that they don't understand even the most basic facts, yeah, is is just like you need to think about that a little harder if you want to contribute anything, yeah. like useful to the conversation. Absolutely, I yeah, I, I agree. I mean, there definitely is, you know, with any of these kind of cultural war debates, there's always a lot of bad faith assumptions, you know, uh, on the other side. Uh, a lot of what we call my side bias in psychology, which means it's easier to point out the, the the dumb behavior on the other side than it is to see it on your own side, and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I think you know the, the fact that so much of this is now happening over social media is not helping. You know, uh, it's very anonymous. Um, uh, or, you know, or, or at least the people that you're fighting against are just names. You know, they're not people that you know. You're not seeing, you don't know, they don't seem to have inner lives to you. They, they themselves are like the orcs who are evil that you need to vanquish, um, you know, for the most part. <laughs> and, uh, and that gets people to behave very, very badly. Like I said, I've seen people on both sides of this debate behave very badly and say things that I just was groaning about, you know, when I saw it on, on, uh, you know, social media. And that's in a part of his human nature, but I think also like, you know, the social media is making this, um, this stuff worse um somewhat but um but yeah i mean it's it's a difficult cycle and you know it's the trick is how to get out of that you know if people are, are just and, and i think what would happen is i you know i agree that for, you know for me like the real the, really the question is kind of the practical impact and if you can kind of bring out this evidence and assuming my study replicates over other studies you know if there was this consistent evidence to suggest there's no link between you know, Dungeons and Dragons playing and racism in real life. And I think that's probably likely what's going to be the end result of, of all this. My guess is if you kind of took that to progressives, there'll still will be at least some, some people will feel better. You know, some people feel, oh, I'm actually, that I, I was worried about that. I'm glad to hear that that's not the case. Maybe, you know, I still don't necessarily want to play this version of the game, but maybe I don't need to see it, you know, become a widespread change. Um, but I still think you'll find a certain percentage of people um, on the progressive side who would say, I don't care. You know, that it makes me feel bad and that, you know, and or they'll, they'll use sort of the the, uh, you know, the they'll, they'll speak on behalf of a group of people that they perceive as marginalized. And they'll sort of portray it as if there's this universal consensus among that group of people, which, again, we've already seen is not not the case. And, and in fairness, I think if you went the other way, if you went to sort of the traditionalists and said, hey, look, we've got this body of evidence that clearly shows there's a relationship between D&D playing and racism in real life. They, you know, there's a certain percentage there that wouldn't care either. You know, so I'm not trying to say one side is bad, one side is good necessarily. But, uh, you know, uh, the, the one thing that's impressed me over the last decade is just how much of these debates are not rational, <laughs> you know, that they really are emotive and moral in nature. Well, and I don't want to talk about that because I think that so much of this is driven by the kind of outrage model of social media and media in general, where, you know, how you achieve, how you get clicks, how you get eyeballs mm, is by yeah. expressing outrage and um, stoking outrage. And, and it, it just, it just flabbergasted, like when, again, when the anti-Duncan thing came out, it just flabbergasted me how many um, of these major uh, news outlets that I mentioned put like, you know, this author calls Tolkien, quote, a racist mm. in his, you know, yeah. and like, and, and, and the, the word racism and racist didn't appear in his, the interview or yeah. in the article at all. Like, it was just completely fabricated quotations around the word racist. Mm -hmm. And then there were so many like YouTube videos where, the, you know, the, they start out and they're like, oh, look at this, this idiot, Andy Duncan. Mm. Let me tell you how stupid he is. And they just like, and they're like, let me read this article, like, blah, blah, blah. Here's what the article says. And they kind of get halfway through and they're like, oh, so what he did is he wrote a, a parody short story. Like, yeah. that doesn't actually <laughs> seem so bad. And it's like, couldn't you have read this? This article is one page long. Couldn't you have read yeah. it before you hit the record button? You know, it's just like so little like due diligence or like just like work ethic yeah. on the part of so many people who comment on these things yeah. on the Internet because it's not rewarded. You know, the hard work's not rewarded. The, yeah. you know, mindless anger is rewarded. Yeah. Well, you, you can see that in, in a lot. Of, and of course, this is nothing new, too. I mean, I even on the violence and video game stuff, I would have people complain about. They say, you know, uh, I, you know, I remember one time some library was having um a uh, expedition where they would let people 17 and older play the Call of Duty game. And I forget which one it was, it was like 15 years ago. Um, and uh, one of the early games in the series. And, you know, there was a, a small group of veterans who were really opposed to it. And they believed, again, this is like glorifying war. And, and actually ended up in discussion with this guy. And he, you know, he was really a nice guy and he really meant well. And, and part, and we had this email exchange that went on for a while. And then finally I asked him, like, have you actually played the game? 
And he's like, no, no, I've never played. So, okay, well, you don't know what you're talking about necessarily, you know. And uh, and, and you see that pattern like so regularly, even in, like you know, you get people that are complaining about David Chappelle's recent, you know, Netflix series, and you ask them, well, have you actually watched it? You know, and they say, well, no, I can't bring myself to watch it. Well, how, you know, how do you know what he actually said in it necessarily? And you and you kind of see that, you know, the same thing on the right, you know. I forget what there was some movie. Cuties. I remember. I never saw the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, people were like, "It's porn- pornography." And again, I haven't seen the movie myself, so I, I can't comment. I'm not going to comment on the content of the movie. But but there was a sense of like a lot of the people, you know, they saw something on Twitter and then retweeted it with their their little outrage attitude. And uh, yeah, it's like a virus sometimes of like a misinformation. Yeah. That- no, the- <laughs> No, the cuties thing was so disheartening to me because there were all these people who I who I was following because they were explicitly, I thought, First Amendment absolutist type people. Yeah. And then their response to cuties was like, this is child porn. Netflix executives should be in jail for allowing this to be on Netflix. Yeah. And it's like, OK, well, there's your there goes your First Amendment <laughs> you know, <laughs> concerns right out the window right there. Yeah. Well, everybody, you know, well, I mean, you, you, I, I have, I've now come across people who will say that they are not free speech <laughs> defended. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. At least you're insightful, um, you know, about that. But, but, you know, of course, a lot of people also think that they're for free speech. And, and what they mean by that is they're for speech being free if they like it. Um, and then yeah. when they come across speech that is, uh, you know, so it's like, you, you can see this like in the, the critical race theory debate, you know, I'm not, I'm not a fan of critical race theory. I don't think it's a good theory, but I do, I don't support the sort of Republican efforts to ban, you know, I don't think you should ban a theory, you know, from being talked about. I don't, you know, I don't know that what K to 12 schools are doing with it is good, but you know, on the other hand, it's better to persuade people of, of a different course of action than to, you know, to ban it. But, but it's interesting to see like exactly what you said, like, you know, the, the right will pick on censorious efforts by the left. And that's actually a big disappointment for me. It's how censorious the left has become in recent years, but the right will pick on that until a movie like cuties comes out or CRT you know, be, becomes uh, popular in, in education. And all of a sudden they want to ban all this stuff. Well, how, you just lost your opportunity to become, you know, have the moral high ground on free speech. So you seem like you were interested in that last year. And now you're not, you know, so what's the story here? And then the left, and I guess I'm on the left myself, but you know, this is uh, my disappointment of the last five years is watching how censorious, um, you know, the, the left has, has come. There was a, there was a book, uh, uh, what the hell is it called? Uh, Abigail Schreier was a day had to do with trans issues, uh, you know, and I, um, go ahead. Oh, no, I'm trying to remember. Uh, something about damage, like irreversible, irreversible damage. damage. Yeah, yeah. And I reviewed it and I reviewed it fairly negatively. But but I also was opposed to the efforts on the left to try to, you know, they try to get it taken out of Target and, and, and Amazon and, and things like that. I was really opposed to, you know, uh, but I think it comes down to the same thing. With the, we're talking about the D&D and the impact on race and that kind of stuff in real life. I think people think that someone's going to read this book. And they're like going to be pro-trans. They're going to read the book and they're going to be anti-trans. And if anything, I, you know, I like to think that I'm mostly pro-trans, you know, but I read the book and I didn't like the book, you know, <laughs> so it's, you know, it, it didn't have a big impact on my worldview, you know, uh, necessarily. Uh, I, th- I mean, I think she maybe made some fair points here and there, but overall wasn't blown away by it. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I think people have this sense of like, if you're exposed to this thing, then that's going to have this like radical impact on a kid's, you know, worldview or an adult's worldview or whatever else. And therefore society needs to be shielded from this stuff. And, and, and part of the message like try to get out for people is that's mostly not true that people are actually really, really hard to persuade. Uh, they're really stubborn. And like I said, they're bad learners. Um, and uh, if that, if you can take any comfort in that, um, usually being exposed to a thing, even an offensive thing, even if they laugh along with it, you know, if they're laughing along with Dave Chappelle or that kind of stuff, doesn't mean they're going to be anti-trans or anything of that sort. These things just don't have that kind of, you know, pervasive impact on people that uh, I think people worry about. Yeah. So I think I would just say, you know, it's better to have consistent principles than to pick a side. And if you're ever going to comment on anything like article, movie, game, anything, you should play it yeah. <laughs> before you comment on it. Like if you haven't, if you have no firsthand experience with it, you know, your, your opinion is not of any value. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, but we're, we're pretty much out of time, so we, we need to start wrapping this up. So, Chris, do you have any just uh, any final thoughts? Anything else you wanted to mention before we uh, say goodbye? Um, no, uh, this has been a real, uh, real lot of fun. Um, I hope that Wizards of the Coast doesn't ruin Dungeons <laughs> and Dragons, uh, uh, but uh, I also hope they find ways of reaching out both to progressives and, and traditionalists, and hopefully working together with these groups to bring them together. Uh, to have some conversations about how to make whether it's 5.5 or 6 or whatever the next edition is going to be uh, to you know to improve it and make it a game that really is inclusive and uh, everybody can feel like they're home in that game. Yeah. All right, so let's wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Christopher J. Ferguson about his article, Are Orcs Racist?, which appears in the journal Current Psychology. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on today. This has been awesome. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Christopher J. Ferguson for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.